In this episode, New York Times bestselling author Daniel Pink shares a science-based approach to the art of persuasion, selling and bagging yourself a raise. All of that coming up, but first, here is a podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. With four New York Times bestsellers to his name, Dan Pink is easily one of the most reliable voices when it comes to persuasion and sales. He's shared hundreds of studies and dozens of tactics on how to persuade others. I read about one of these tactics a few years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since which is a little weird because it's an odd one. The reason it's stuck with me isn't because I've used it, or even because it's been used on me, it's because I've seen it in person. Back in 2019, while spending some time in New Zealand, I watched The Hacker. And now the All Blacks, just waiting for the French to peel off the tracksuits, stand in front of them, and receive the challenge of The Hacker. Yep. That hacker. The hacker is a ceremonial dance in Maori culture. The all-black rugby team do it before every game. Now, the all-black rugby team are probably the best rugby team in the world, and they have consistently outperformed far more populous nations. They are also the only team that do the hacker before every game. Social scientists have often wondered if this success has anything to do with their pre-game hacker. One scientist actually researched it. Robin Dunbar has studied groups for decades. He's observed that complete strangers experience a rise in their endorphin levels when singing together in choirs. The larger the choir, the greater the endorphin release. In his view, this phenomenon helps explain why the New Zealand all-black national rugby team is so successful. They may have a theoretical disadvantage from being drawn from a tiny population, but they have the hacker warm-up ritual on their side. It is the hallmark of a good ritual. Every element of it triggers the endorphin system, according to Dunbar. One of the main hallmarks is mimicry. Just like in choirs or in dances, each player is mimicking the action of each other. They stomp their feet and beat their chests in union. And that mimicry, according to the science behind it, boosts performance. As noted in Bruce Daisley's book Fortitude, mimicry has been shown to boost performance of Oxford University rugby teams by 2.5% in a standard sprint test. 2.5% might not sound like a lot, but for an international rugby team at the top level, like the All Blacks, that's a major advantage. Now, mimicry isn't just a powerful motivator, it's a powerful persuader as well. 
Luke Burgess, in his book Wanting, shares a 2008 study published in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. In it, 62 students were assigned to negotiate with other students. Those who mirrored others' posture and speech reached a settlement in their negotiation 67% of the time. So if you mirror the other person's posture, if you match their tone, you're you're very likely to reach a settlement 67% of the time. While those that didn't mirror, those who didn't match the tone and and posture of the other people, they only reached a settlement 12.5% of the time. Mirroring is a great persuader. It's a great motivator. And just like with the hacker, mirroring someone's actions increased cohesion and improved negotiations. But does it work in sales? Can it get results outside the lab and in business? I asked the persuasion expert, Dan Pink. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when I looked at this line of research, we have certain kinds of beliefs, especially like in sales training, there's certain kinds of things that they that people that the trainers tell you. You have no idea where they got the idea from. And so some of it, some of what they tell you turns out to be absolute bullshit and some of it is actually accurate and mimicry which which we've all also heard you mimic the other side's gestures um, mimic their posture um it sounds duplicitous but there's a huge amount of evidence that it's effective and the reason is this that one of the most important things in any kind of sales and persuasion is getting out of your own head and understanding the world from someone else's point of view and that is not only cognitive and not only emotional but at least partly embodied and so there is evidence showing that if I adopt your posture, I actually have a better sense of where you're coming from. If I adopt your hand gestures, I have a better sense of where you're coming from. I think the big, uh, the, the really powerful thing is language, repeating language. Um, it, I have a better sense. So it's not duplicitous because human beings are natural mimickers. If you look at human beings out in the wild in their day-to-day lives, you, and, and you watch them from afar, you see this thing that almost looks choreographed the way that people are mirroring and mimicking each other's things. And so being conscious of that and reflecting back somebody's hand gestures, reflecting back somebody's posture, their stance, uh, and also in certain kinds of, especially sales circumstances, reflecting back their language, using their language rather than your own specialized jargon, is a way to take their perspective and find common ground. Now, before on the show, I've shared studies from Robert Cialdini's book, Presuasion, that found that salespeople who mimicked the language styles and nonverbal behaviors, like gestures and postures, when they mimicked those of their customers, they sold more of the electronic equipment they recommended. So just mimicking increased their sales. And that's in a real world example. And it's pretty cool. But maybe you expected that after all the research I've shown you. However, There is another study from Dan's book that is even more impressive. Here's Dan walking through it. Well, let's talk about that because it's a very interesting study out of Holland showing that you had half the waiters, um, you know, took the order and half the waiters took the order. But when they took the order, they repeated the order back word for word. So if someone says, um, I want um, steak free, medium rare um, with uh, a side of broccoli. They say, oh, okay, you want steak free, medium rare with a side of broccoli. So they repeat back word for word. And the, the ones, the, the mimickers got, got I mean, the, the, the effect was huge. It was something like 70, 70% greater tips. So, so why is that? Um, it, so you would think, okay, the ones who repeated it back are more likely to get the order right. But 
waiters 99% of the time get the order right. It's really not that, you know, it's not that difficult. That was not the effect that was that, that it was. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, we have to guess about what the why that was. I think it was because people felt heard. They felt listened to. Um, they they knew that someone was paying attention and listening. I think that was the I think that was the big effect. So um, and you see this in other uh, you know, I, I think this is a very important counsel in people who are doing um, technically complicated things, uh, whether it's medicine or um, certain kinds of technology or, or anything where you are an expert in a specialized domain that has its own very specialized vocabulary and you're dealing with someone who's not in that specialized domain and they don't use your vocabulary. They use essentially a more mundane civilian vocabulary. And what happens a lot of times is that the experts use their own specialized jargon rather than the prospect or client's language. And that's, and, and that's the source of some problems because it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a disconnect. What you should be doing is using their language, even if it's imprecise, and then coaching them about the, the, the better language. So this is a very easy thing to do to build greater, uh, to build our powers of perspective taking. This resonated with me. It's something I've experienced in my day job, writing copy on websites for tech brands like Hotjar and Buffer. I've seen that using familiar language that your customers use consistently outperforms more technical language that might sound impressive but doesn't mean as much for the customer. Harry Dry's site, Marketing Examples, showcases this beautifully. He says, don't say the world's first portable digital media player. Say 1,000 songs in your pocket, just like Apple did. Don't say supercharge your front-end experience with real-world scenarios. Say improve your front-end skills by building real projects. And if you're selling plants, don't say indoor plants with patented long-life technology. Say almost unkillable indoor plants. Mimicking the words that your customers use works in sales and it works in marketing copy as well. But what about pitching? Many of you listening will present pitches, perhaps more often than you think. Sure, some might be pitching for for new business, a new job, but almost all of us have to pitch a holiday to our partner or a movie suggestion to our kids. But what makes a good pitch? Find out after this short break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Welcome back to Nudge. Here's Dan Pink explaining what makes a good pitch. So the most important thing that I learned in doing this research on sales and persuasion, I really think it's the most important thing that sort of changed how I do things, is, is about pitching. 
And there's research from Stanford University and the University of California, Davis, where these two scientists uh, accompanied uh, producers in Hollywood pitch meetings. And they recorded the pitches and they analyzed the transcripts to try to figure out what was a successful pitch and what was not. And what they found is that the most successful pitches took a very different approach. It wasn't, it wasn't about necessarily mimicry or any specific tactical moves. It was the overall approach that they took. That the most successful pitches invited the other side in as a collaborator. This is so profoundly important. It changed the way I pitch. I used to pitch as almost like a vaudeville act where I would do a little song and dance, you know, wait to take a bow and have them open up their checkbooks. And that's not how you do it. What you want is you want to, you want to do a pitch that invites them in as a collaborator. So um, you, want to, you want to hear responses like, oh, well, what if we did this? What if this? How about that? You know, you want to have them as a collaborator, and that's a very different way of pitching. It's a little less performative, um, and that's when you know that it's working. So, n- not in all cases, but in but in but in most cases, questions are a powerful way to turn a dull pitch into one that the audience is engaged with. I did an episode on the power of questions a while back. It's called "How I Improved a Reddit Ad by Fifteen Percent." One of the takeaways is how one question can dramatically increase the amount of people who stop and answer questions to street-side researchers. Now, now these street-side researchers, these these are the ultimate pitch, right? You go up to someone on the street and the people you're trying to talk to, they're trying to get on with their day, but you stop and you say, hey, can I have a minute of your time to ask you a few questions? This is not an easy ask, but the right questions will make people far more likely to stop and answer your survey. A brilliant study by Balkan and Anderson first measured how many people would stop when they were first asked to take part in the survey, and it's not many, it's just 29%. But if they instructed the researcher to first ask, do you consider yourself a helpful person? So that's what you ask when someone is walking past you in the street. The amount of people who stopped to answer the whole survey skyrocketed to 77%, so 29% to 77% just by asking the right question. That is the power of a good question. So should we always use questions in our pitches? Or are there other tactics we should try? I asked Dan. You know, I think we have to figure out like, when do we use questions? And when do we use statements? And there's a strong there's there's a there's a heuristic that we can use with questions when 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 we pitch with questions, questions are effective persuasive tools, when the facts are clearly on your side. Uh, Because questions by their very nature are are um, interactive, that when I ask a question, people's wheels turn just a tad and in a way that they don't necessarily for declarations. And so if I ask a question, people's wheels turn. And so if the facts are on my side, um, then they their wheels turn and they have their own reasons, their own path, their own journey to re- reaching my conclusion. When people have their own reasons for doing something, they believe those reasons more deeply and adhere to the behavior more strongly. So questions are an effective form of pitching. Uh, there's some fascinating evidence that rhyming is more persuasive than, than not rhymes. Um, there, are other, um, um, there are other sorts of ways that we can fashion our pitch into a, a, a narrative. And so if we're a little bit more creative about how we pitch, the forms our pitches take, and we recognize the point of the exercise, 
which is to invite a collaboration, then I think we can be a lot better off. Dan has shared plenty more pitch examples in his book, To Sell is Human. One of my favorites is his research on subject lines. An email subject line is really, it's a classic pitch. It's asking for attention. He studied hundreds of subject lines to learn what worked and what didn't. He said the best subject lines fall into two categories. One is the category of utility. Utility means the subject line is very useful to someone. So for example, say you've just booked a holiday to Florence and your travel agent emails you with the subject line, here are four restaurants I think you'll love in Florence. You'll you'll definitely open that email because it's useful to you. But as I'm sure many of you listening will think, we can't always offer something that useful. So the other category that you can use to get people to open your email is curiosity. Dan says that every other type of subject line doesn't work very well, so stick to utility and curiosity. So what's a good curiosity-based subject line? Well, Dan gives an example from Obama's election campaign in 2008. The Obama team heavily used email marketing during the 2008 and 2012 elections. Now, there was one email that got the best open rate. Now, think about that. There were thousands of emails that they must have sent over these campaigns, but one got the very best open rate. And that email just used a simple curiosity-based subject line. The subject line just said, hey, that's it, nothing else. And it worked because it sparks curiosity. The reader wonders, okay, what's this about? What was I sent this by accident? Why is Obama emailing me to say, hey, curiosity gets us to open the email. All right, what else? What else works? Well, rhyming can help you with your pitches. Yep, rhyming. Studies show that rhymes are more memorable. It's why phrases like all's well that ends well stick in the mind. Research cited in the Choice Factory show that these phrases aren't just more memorable, they're more persuasive as well. A pitch that rhymes convinces. Dan gives a great example of this. At the end of the O.J. Simpson trial, O.J.'s lawyer finished with a closing statement, and unsurprisingly, it's a rhyme. Now famously, during the trial, the the blood-stained glove that was supposedly used to murder Nicole Brown Simpson couldn't fit on OJ's hand. This was one of the main things that they talked about in their defense. So OJ's lawyer ended his statement with this rhyme. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. OJ was found not guilty, and that rhyme has stuck in the mind of viewers ever since. One final example, again, of questions, and this is from Dan's book. Dan claims that questions are powerful, not because they just engage people, but because they actually change the audience's perception from a passive participant to an active participant. So you're not just sitting passively, you're actively engaging and thinking about what the other person is saying. According to Dan, Ronald Reagan used this to his advantage before the 1980 election. Now, in the run-up to this election, the economy was in a downturn. So, so put yourselves in Reagan's shoes. What would you say to convince people that the economy is a problem, to really get them to think about it and engage in it? Perhaps you'd say something like, your economy condition has deteriorated dramatically over the last 48 months. You, you could say that, but it wouldn't be very persuasive. Reagan, he didn't do this. He used a question to try and get listeners to take notice, to make them an active participant in the conversation. He said, Next Tuesday is election day. Next Tuesday, all of you will go to the polls 
who stand there in the polling place and make a decision. I think when you make that decision, it might be well if you would ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? Is it easier for you to go and buy things in the stores than it was four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment in the country than there was four years ago? Now that's more persuasive and more memorable because the audience starts thinking about it. They start articulating their own reasons to agree and they become more active in the pitch rather than passive. So that's persuasive pitches. Questions, rhyming and curiosity, they can all help capture the attention and make your pitch more successful. But what about asking for a raise? Here's Dan explaining how he'd do it. It's hard. It's a hard thing to do. It's uncomfortable. But again, I think there's an argument for pushing past the discomfort. So the, the one thing that I would say as a macro point is ask for the raise in terms of as much as you can in terms of the boss's self-interest. There is a lot. There's a difference between persuading up and persuading down. Um, and, you know, and again, forgive me for being so explicit that there are hierarchies in organizations where some people are above you and some people are below you. And the way you persuade up and the way you persuade down is different. With persuading down, there's a lot to be said for reducing your feelings of power because that can increase the acuity of your perspective taking. But for persuading up, you got to focus on interests. you got to focus on interests. What's in it for them? There's, there's some interesting research in negotiation where they put, I'll, get, I'll tell you the study, where they put people, they give people um, a fact pattern that has to do with the sale of a petrol station. And they tell one group of people, go in and get a good deal. That's their control group. They have another group of people. They say, go in and get a good deal. Focus on their uh, thoughts. Focus on their interests. They have another who go in there and say, go in and get a good deal, but focus on their emotions and their feelings. And it turned out, that the people who focused on the the thoughts and interests were the most effective. And I think it's because when we're negotiating, we have a very heavy cognitive load. We have a lot of information coming at us. And so you ideally want to have both the emotional channel and the thoughts and interest channel. But that's very hard for people. And so when persuading up, what's in it for the boss? What's in it for the boss to give you a raise? Why does it make the boss's life easier? Is it that you're not going to spend any time thinking about. You're not going to. You're not going to have to look for another job. Um, that once you have this um, a higher salary, you don't have to think about whether you're getting paid fairly or not. You don't have to look and and see what other people are getting paid. You can focus more squarely on the job. Um, I'm convinced it's probably the best advice that I have for entry level employees. You're graduating university. You're about to start a job. Rec- I've told my own kids this. Recognize. That bosses everywhere always divide people into two categories. Those who make my life easier and those who make my life harder. And so if you're persuading up, whether it's asking for a raise or anything else, put it, what, how does it make your boss's life easier? As an entry-level person, making your boss's life easier is the smartest thing that you can do. There's some great advice there. The one that really stuck with me is the negotiation study where participants were asked to sell a petrol station. Yeah, I checked. It is a petrol station. I know it's weird. Anyway, participants were split up into three conditions. One group were asked just to sell, nothing else, just sell the petrol station. The second were asked to sell, but to focus on the buyer's emotion. So constantly think, what's the buyer feeling in this moment? 
The third group were asked to sell, but to focus on the buyer's interest. So constantly think, okay, what does the buyer want? What are their interests? What are they after? The group that focused on the buyer's interests, they got the best deal. Now, maybe this shouldn't surprise us. After all, framing your message so it's relevant to your audience, that's well-known advice. But when it comes to asking for a raise, this is all too often forgotten. Securing a raise doesn't involve bombarding your boss with facts and figures and success stories. It involves reframing the proposition from, can I get a raise? To, here's how my raise is in your best interests. Okay, folks, that is all for today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, you'll enjoy episode 74 of Nudge. It is called How to Change Someone's Mind. On that episode, I reveal that changing someone's mind isn't as easy as you might expect. My guests uncover that sharing facts and opinions won't really change someone's mind. But putting yourselves in their shoes, just like Dan said, can shift perception. It's a really good listen, so go and check it out. I've left a link to it in the show notes. And by the way, Dan's books, they're really good to read. You should really pick up a copy. I've been an avid reader of Dan's books like Drive and When and The Power of Regret for years. I've been reading them for for probably a decade now, and I would recommend all of them. But if you enjoy today's show in particular, then you'll love Dan's book, which is called To Sell is Human. In the book, Dan breaks down how to sell, how to be more persuasive, and more tips for improving your influence. So go and pick up a copy of of that book. I've left a link to it in the show notes. As always, please follow Nudge wherever you listen. Please follow me on social media for updates on the show and click the link in the show notes to sign up for my newsletter. If you do, you'll get reminders every time an episode goes live and you'll get psychology-inspired tips every week all about stuff like making smarter decisions, improving your business and, I don't know, even tips to go to the gym more often, that sort of thing. Thanks again for listening, folks. You've been listening to Nudge with me, your host, Phil Agnew, and I'll be back again next week for another episode.